wherever you are listening, a warm welcome to this podcast about the history of Australia's engagement with the world. This is coming to you from the University of Sydney's School of Humanities and the Discipline of History. Your host is me, James Curran. I'm Professor of Modern History here at Sydney University and also the International Editor at the Australian Financial Review, where I write regularly about Australia in world affairs. Over the next few months, I'm going to talk to you about how Australia has thought about and acted in the world beyond its shores, about the policies it has shaped, pursued and enacted to make sense of the world and the region of which it is a part, and the relationship of those policies to culture, ideas and identity. Now, it won't surprise you at all to hear a historian say that the times are propitious for an examination of Australia's foreign and defence policy past. Listen to any major speech these days by a politician or policymaker or think tanker about foreign, defence or strategic policy, and you will likely find the expression somewhere within it that we live in the most unpredictable and fluid strategic circumstances since the Second World War, and the most febrile and dangerous. And there's, of course, every reason for these uh, leaders and commentators to be making such points. It is a time of great flux and of transition, and the strategic waters are by no means tranquil. We are, after all, currently debating whether US-China strategic competition constitutes a new Cold War. Words like containment, appeasement and Munich drip so easily from the tongues of officials, diplomats and pundits. Yet for all this uncertainty, for all the premiums now placed on strategic judgments about the future and what it holds, all those efforts to see around corners, a very difficult thing to do, there is a widespread perception that the past holds out little by way of guidance for the current policymaker or indeed anyone trying to make sense of what's going on. Now this I find something of a genuine oddity, this near disdain for history at the very moment the back catalogue of the Cold War, or Australia's anxieties about the rise of an Asian power, are being ransacked at will and deployed in the public debate. And yet in the next breath, the circumstances are deemed so novel that history is rendered either irrelevant or a frivolous indulgence, as if it's some kind of sojourn into sepia. Now, it's not for me at this moment to recite Cicero's warning in his treatise on oratory, but I will. That is, Cicero said, and I quote him, to be ignorant of what happened before you were born is to remain always a child. Nor is it for me to remind listeners, but I'm going to, of Australian historian Neville Meany's observation that the subject of history, because of the way that it is built into the human psyche, can never merely be an object of curiosity. Rather, it will always be a focus of passion, a field for argument, and a basis for judgment. And all that the historian can do, Meany argued, in bringing the past to life, or in probing the alternatives out of which the present has emerged, is to mediate the passion, clarify the argument, and enlighten the judgment. I would simply also point out, in addition to quoting Cicero and Neville Meany, that the place of history in the rhetoric and outlook of the major powers which dominate world politics today is all too evident. One need only consider, for example, how Xi Jinping talks about China not wanting to again endure a century of humiliation at the hands of Western powers. He talks about 5,000 years of continuous history as being so pivotal in shaping China's outlook on the world. Think too about how Russian President Vladimir Putin refers to the collapse of the Soviet Union at Cold War's end as the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century, and how Russian grievance today 
is animated in part, but not wholly explained by, the expansion of NATO and European Union over the last few decades. Or pick up any American presidential speech, probably barring the four years of President Donald Trump, who didn't talk this language, intriguingly, but pick up any American presidential speech at a time of crisis or war or national commemoration and feel America's sense of special mission or historic sense of manifest destiny drip from its pages. If you're searching for an Australian example of this kind of language, look no further than the slogan 100 Years of Mateship that was crafted in recent years to shape a narrative of long-standing Australian loyalty to the United States in times of war or conflict. Now this is a tale about brothers in arms, stretching all the way from Lourmel in France in 1917 during the First World War to the streets of Baghdad in 2003 and no doubt beyond. And this slogan wraps the Anzac legend around the American alliance, as if folding the slouch hat of the digger into the nation's strategic doctrine. We will explore this slogan and its usage later in this podcast series. My argument, of course, is that there is a place for sentiment in the relationship between allies, but there is a danger when sentiment dictates to policy. Think, too, of the slew of historical images, fears and phobias from the late 19th century and the 1960s that have been marshalled in the debate over how Australia can manage the rise of China, whether it be the Yellow Peril, Red China, or the reappearance of maps featuring those lunging, elongated, bulging red arrows from Cold War cartography once more reaching down towards a vulnerable, innocent Australia. Even the ABC, indeed the national broadcast, is one of the worst offenders here, regularly carries maps of Australia being flooded in a Chinese red tide. Now that's enough of a preamble, but let me set out what this series is going to be about. It's going to cover Australia's relations with and response to the world from the late 19th century to the present. And for this purpose, I'm going to focus on the historical, cultural, ideological, economic and strategic factors shaping the Australian government's foreign and defence policies. At the outset, it is important to bear in mind that contemporary events in the international sphere cannot be interpreted on their own terms. Treating Australia's reaction to the latest foreign crisis in this way may give rise to a lively debate, but rarely does it advance understanding. In all such attempts to give meaning to these events, theories of international relations and ideas about politics and culture are necessarily, even if unreflectively, brought into play. Words and phrases such as national interests, vital interests, realpolitik, realism, balance of power, power politics, imperialism, pragmatism, moralism, moral principles, human rights, cultural values and liberal internationalism are often used as though they are self-explanatory. Likewise, historical experience is frequently invoked to clinch an argument. Sometimes this history is no more than yesterday's headline on the TV news. More frequently, people, especially political leaders, draw upon supposed lessons from the past to justify the stands they take. This history is most commonly a cliché invoked for immediate political purposes. And since World War II, the so-called Munich lesson has been much cited in this way. Australian ministers called upon it in adopting the policies of containment during the Cold War, in committing Australian forces to the Vietnam War, in urging resistance to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the late 1970s and at the time of crises in the Persian Gulf, both in the early 1990s and in 2003. 
Former Prime Minister John Howard did, at least on one occasion, mention this lesson in committing Australia to join the American-led coalition in the war against Iraq in 2003. And it's being heard repeatedly in the debate today, especially in the discussions over the fate of Ukraine and Taiwan. Therefore, throughout this podcast series, my intention is not to rush to judgment, but to approach the large questions that we'll be dealing with in an informed as well as a critical manner. Australia's foreign and defence policy, like that of most countries of course, has first and foremost been concerned with national security. Australia, in responding to changing world circumstances, has had to face up to some unique problems. As a primarily European-derived nation situated in the Western Pacific, it's had to wrestle with special geocultural and geopolitical issues inherent in these circumstances. For Australians, East Asia, or the Near North, as uh, former Prime Minister Robert Menzies referred to it, has been a central factor in shaping their attitude to the world. And in this context, Australia has been described by some as a frightened country, or, in the words of another book, an anxious nation. To unscramble this, I'm going to consider how Australia has understood nation and sovereignty, culture and race, independence and great power dependence, globalisation and regionalism, internationalism and human rights. To set the scene for examining Australia's response to the world, I will look first at historical themes and issues which still have a bearing on Australia's response to the contemporary world. Among these are the white Australia policy and its legacy, Britishness, national identity and republicanism, and communities of interest and culture. I will then, later in the series, look at the notion of the free versus the communist worlds, the rise of Asian nationalism, and the signing of the ANZUS Treaty in September 1951. Against that background, I will then investigate the making of Australia's contemporary foreign and defence policy in the post-Cold War era. This will include the study of public opinion, special interest and bureaucratic influences, the role of prime ministers, individual ministers and political parties, the globalising economy and its effects on trade, investment and diplomacy, immigration, internationalism, peacekeeping and human rights, continental defence and its critics, the making of APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, and the debate over engagement with Asia, and the significance of the American alliance. Later in the series, I'll give special attention to two case studies, the military interventions in East Timor in 1999 and in Iraq in 2003. And of course, I will finish the series by looking at how Australia has dealt with the rise of China, especially since the coming of Xi Jinping to power in 2012. Now, in approaching this subject of Australia's relations with the world, of course, this won't surprise you to hear, I've always believed that the best stance to adopt is a critical one. Now, I don't mean that in terms of uh, adopting a critical stance like Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 911. What I mean is that we should approach the subject in the spirit of inquiry. And there are two, I think, critical aspects to this. The first is about critical reflection and the self. And the second is about critical distance and the problem of nationalism and how we understand nationalism. Now, I want to deal with each of these briefly in turn uh, during this podcast. Uh, Please bear in mind I'm not trying to flick the switch to the existential. These are very crucial points about how to approach the topic. So what do I mean when I talk about critical reflection and the self? Now, it's important to bear in mind that Australian foreign and defence policy is a topic which quite properly stirs up passions, often party passions. 
And over the last two decades in particular, following the terrorist attacks on the American World Trade Center in New York, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., the Bali bombings, the global financial crisis of 2008, the rise of China, Australia, of course, has become deeply involved uh, in the violence and in the drama of international politics, as it has always been. In more recent years, it's actually seen itself as being at the vanguard, if you like, or on the front line of how to respond to Xi Jinping's more assertive brand of Chinese aggression and exceptionalism. As I'm sure you're aware, in addition to being involved in the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, Australian governments have also sent military and police forces to take part in peacekeeping interventions in East Timor, Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. Its defence cooperation with Japan and others in the region is only increasing. It is, of course, an integral member of the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, along with India, the United States and Japan. And under the Morrison and Albanese governments, Australia has committed to developing a nuclear-powered submarine capability. It does continue to be a, a time of great disturbance in the region and the world. We've seen over the last two decades, we still see it particularly in Europe, intense political and cultural debates about asylum seekers and boat people. We have debated how our nearest Asian neighbour, Indonesia, has been troubled by Islamic radicalism and the internal problems it faces, problems for which there are no easy solutions. And Indonesia continues to be threatened by secession movements. In Northeast Asia and in the South Pacific, there are other issues of so-called failed states, rogue states and irredentist movements. All of these matters require Australian responses, and therefore they affect us, both as citizens of Australia and citizens of the world. What Australia should do in these circumstances is a matter of considerable controversy, and it rouses strong feelings. And all of us to some extent, including myself, come to the discussion of these problems with preconceptions. It is right, of course, that as citizens we should have views on our country's behaviour in the world. What I stress here is the importance of examining your reactions and trying to set aside your prejudgments, just as I do. This podcast is not about massaging existing prejudices. Rather, my intention is to open your mind to new possibilities of understanding and to challenge you to look disinterestedly at alternative ways of thinking about the subject. That is, to enter the imagination of those whose views you might often preemptively dismiss. Now, at the end of this podcast series, your earlier convictions might well be enhanced, they might be transformed, they might merely be modified, and of course they may not be changed at all. But my aim is this, and I stress it's an aim and not a guarantee. Whatever your views, they should hopefully be based on more knowledge and held with greater sophistication. You should have, I hope, a more intelligent and critical appreciation of Australia's role in the world. That is what I am setting out to do here. Let me move on to that second critical factor, critical reflection and the nation. What do I mean by this? What I mean is that associated with this problem of subjectivity and emotional involvement is this question of nationalism. Now, this podcast is about Australia's role in the world. And for those of you listening who are Australian, of course, our social identity as Australians is bound up with the subject. Now, national feeling, even if in Australia it's nowhere near as strong or as absolute as it was in the first part of last century, nevertheless, it's still important to us. 
And so, naturally enough, we are accustomed to talking about Australian actions in the world using the first-person plural. That is, Australians, like all other peoples, often talk about their country's policies or actions as though they are a part of them. In other words, we often hear the phrase, when we helped the East Timorese to secure their independence, or when our forces went to Iraq, or when we refused to ratify the Kyoto Protocols on global warming, and so on when we landed on Gallipoli, for example. Therefore, to help us further in trying to come to terms with this subject, I will, in this series, treat the subject as though it were about a foreign country. This is about treating Australia as a foreign country. So I am approaching this task as though from the outside, investigating the forces shaping the other. The point of doing this is to test my ability and yours to control the powerful emotions that are evoked by social identity that is, by those ideas which give you a stable sense of yourself as a social being. Indeed, since this series is about Australia's relations with the world, the first question we should really think about in this podcast is what is this Australia we are talking about? And perhaps the best starting point for exploring this is to try to determine when Australia became a nation. Now, bear in mind that In a very famous case in the High Court of Australia in 1999, Sue v. Hill, the High Court judges, the most eminent legal minds in the country, were at a loss to how to decide this question. And in their informal discussions, they threw in a number of quite disparate possibilities about when did Australia become an independent country, or looking at it from another angle, When exactly did Britain become a foreign country to Australia? Let me repeat, the most brilliant legal minds in the country could not come to a consensus on these questions. Now let me give you a greater range of possibilities for this idea of when Australia became an independent nation. Often in my courses at Sydney University, I put the students on the spot in the very first lesson of the semester and I ask each of them to tell me when did Australia become independent and I get a range of answers which tells you something about the problematic nature of this concept. So here is the choice that I often receive. Some will say, of course, that Australia became independent at the moment of European settlement in 1788. Others will reference the granting of colonial self-government in the 1850s. Some will mention the Eureka Stockade incident of 1854 on the Ballarat goldfields, an argument about taxes that has often been dressed up as Australia's answer to the Declaration of Independence in the United States or the storming of, of the Bastille in France. It's been dressed up in these robes, which I think it really struggles to wear. Some others will say the 1890s. They'll talk about the burst of cultural nationalism, the poetry of Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson. They'll talk about the artists of the Heidelberg School who finally worked out how to paint a gum tree properly and not to paint the Australian landscape as some kind of English gentleman's park. They'll mention that decade too for the birth of the Labor Party, the trade union movements. Some will mention, of course, 1901, Federation, the formation of Australia as we know it as the political entity we have today. Many will always come back and say the moment of independence was Gallipoli, the landing at Anzac Cove in Turkey on April the 25th, 1915, 
the first time that Australian forces had fought under their own name, the Australian Imperial Forces. Others will tell you Australian independence came in 1926 at the Imperial Conference in London and the release of the Balfour Declaration. Now, this was when London, basically the British government, said to all its dominions, it's time for all of you, if you like, to hop out of the imperial nest, make your own way. You are self-governing, you are autonomous within the British Empire, you are free to make your own foreign policy, you are free to join or not in Britain's wars. And that, of course, then became the Statute of Westminster in 1931, which Australia did not ratify until the 1940s, and even then, only over some obscure maritime incident. Others will point to 1941, the famous call in an article in the Melbourne Herald on December the 27th that year by Labor Prime Minister John Curtin, when he looked to America for support in meeting the threat from Japan. Others will talk about Australian independence coming with the fall of Singapore in 1942. All those guarantees that had been given to Australian policymakers and politicians during the 1930s and into the 1940s about Singapore being the impregnable bastion that would save Australia from the Asian menace. It fell, like most of Southeast Asia, like nine pins before the Japanese advance. This, for many, is the moment that Australia broke free of the bubbles of old world imperialism, as Vance Palmer called it, and embraced an independent future. Others will talk about the moment of independence coming in the early 1960s when the British government signalled its ambition to join the European Economic Community. Now that application was unsuccessful. French President Charles de Gaulle said no. But many in Australia's political elite knew the game was up, that Australia would now have to find new markets and would have to develop new relationships with the countries and cultures of Asia. Still others will come back and say that actually the moment of Australian independence was 1972 and the election of the first Labor government in 23 years and the suite of initiatives surrounding Gough Whitlam's so-called new nationalism, the introduction of a new national anthem, a new honours system, the whole it's time momentum for taking Australia into a new era. Others will suggest that 1986 and the passing of the Australia Act, which finally cut any residual appeals from the High Court of Australia to London's Privy Council, they were over. That, for many, is the date of official Australian independence. And, of course, there are many who will come back and say Australia is not independent because we are not yet an Australian republic. So, the number of possibilities there give you a sense of the problem in coming to terms with this question. There is a very strong myth that is very difficult to sort of blast from its secure moorings in the Australian imagination about 1942. But I do want to suggest throughout this podcast that there are a lot of other possibilities here of approaching the question. Now, the problem is not some kind of uh, esoteric sort of dalliance by historians trying to bring more clarity to this question of Australian independence. It was actually given a recent airing by the current Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, during a major speech in Singapore last month. Now, Prime Minister was speaking to delegates at the Shangri-La Dialogue, the preeminent security summit in this part of the world. Mr Albanese clearly did not want to make too much of the fact that for all the emphasis he was making in his remarks on the role of smaller to middle powers in world politics, Australia has well and truly picked its side in the strategic competition between the United States and China. 
But Australia's choice was revealed in his speech in a somewhat curious way. In that speech, Mr Albanese said, and I quote him, For as long as Australia has made our foreign policy, he said, our alliance with the United States has been central to it. Now, at first glance, that statement is unremarkable, even obvious. Australia is independent, yet aligned, aligned with the United States. Yet there's a drafting problem here which reveals the dilemma of how this country conceives the very idea of its independence in world affairs. How can Australia have made its own foreign policy, yet one where the US has always been central? Now, Mr Albanese, to be fair, is not sitting in an archive. But the assumption here is that Australia grasped the nettle of its independence only by virtue of its relationship with the United States. How can Australia have its own foreign policy if cast in an American mould? Now, undoubtedly, Mr Albanese's statement relates to a very powerful myth in Labor's conception of Australian foreign policy. That is, that independence came in 1942. Independence came at the moment that Curtin had to look to America to secure Australia's defence against the Japanese in those dark days of late 1941 and early 1942. But to make this point ignores that colonial governments, even before Federation, pressed a distinctive view of their security fears and anxieties on London and clashed regularly with all the departments of state in London, in Whitehall. Indeed, as did governments of all political stripes after 1901, and during the Cold War, governments in Canberra clashed with Washington too. Cultural loyalty to its great power allies hoped for a shared community of interests, but these hopes were often dashed against the rocks of respective and often differing national interests. Now, that is a theme to which I will return quite often in this series, the theme of Australia's cultural and sentimental loyalties and affections, coming up against the distinctive interests that arise from its unique geopolitical position in the world. For it's in that dynamic that you can find the key to unlocking how Australia has thought about and acted in the world. Well, that's enough for this first episode. Thank you very much for tuning in and for listening. And wherever you are, until next time, it's goodbye from me. I'd also like to acknowledge the Indigenous peoples for over 60,000 years who lived on, loved and dreamt about the lands on which I'm speaking today. And I pay my respects to their present and future successors who continue to embody their affection for Australia and their enthusiasm for its well-being. This series is produced by Peter Adams for the School of Humanities at the University of Sydney.